you're listening to Voices of Value, a selection of valuable insights designed to help you get more out of your professional and personal life through simple and easy-to-adopt life lessons. If you're keen to enjoy a better quality of life at work and at home, sit back and join the conversation with your hosts, Peter Kakos and Rick Rushton. Welcome to Voices of Value, episode 29. Peter Kakos here, Ricky Rushton. Great to see you. Great to be here, Pete. Great uh, interviews lined up for the next coming week, none better with the one we're about to do today. Absolutely, and we find ourselves in the confines of uh, one of the great sporting meccas of, uh, of Melbourne. It's called Punt Road Oval, and uh, Melburnians well and truly know where we are right now. It's the home of the Richmond Footy Club. Very tribal, mate. I mean, you know, 100,000 members, can you get over that? Like, and, and a club that was starved of success if you classed ultimate success as a premiership. I mean, they hadn't won one for like 1980 to 2017, so there was a fairly big break. Yeah, so the supporters are up and about, and, and we're up and about because uh, we get to speak to an elite sports person today, uh, the physical performance coach of the Richmond Football Club, Commonwealth Games gold medalist. And an Olympian. Absolutely. So we've got Peter Burge and uh, an absolute uh, pleasure and privilege to have um, the calibre of of such a gentleman that sits with us uh, in the room, a Commonwealth Games gold medalist. He is the current physical performance coach uh, at the Richmond Footy Club. And uh, Pete, we're going to delve into um, to a lot of things today around your Previous career as an athlete, and and looking at your your time now with the athletes of um of the Richmond Footy Club, but uh, welcome to Voices of Value. Thanks for having me, guys. <laughs> High production, mate, isn't it? Like you've just done all these interviews today, and you've come into a very small room with us. It's almost yeah. like a closet. So, nineteen ninety eight Commonwealth uh, Games gold medalist there in Kuala Lumpur. Uh, you're a finalist Sydney two thousand Olympics, two thousand and one World Indoors, a junior international triple jump champion. Uh, that was before you moved over to long jump uh, as well. So four Australian titles and a personal best long jump of 8.30. But little asterisks next to a, a one I see down here <laughs> at about 8.40 or something 848. like that. Yeah. 8.48. 8.48. The asterisk says... Uh, wind assist. Yeah. A bit of wind there. <laughs> yeah. Um, that was that was two weeks before the Olympic Games Oh wow! on the Gold Coast. It was an international meet leading into the Olympics and... I do have some pretty good memories of that. Um, I just wish that was two weeks later. Um, <laughs> albeit, yeah, there was a little bit of a tailwind, but um, yeah, that, uh, it, that's the longest I've ever jumped, but it doesn't count because there's a little bit too much wind. Yeah, yeah. right. But don't forget, mate, you're the sixth best on the planet at what you do. And when you talk 7 billion people, that's got to give us some context on that, you know, to sort of, um, I think around that time, I always remember jumping Jai Tarima. He was the one that everyone was getting in behind because he had that media profile. But uh, you'd sort of um, done 8.3 metres before that too uh, in Melbourne, clearly, in that Olympic year. Yep, that's right. Uh, Would have been March that year and um, at the old Olympic Park, which doesn't, uh, the track isn't there anymore. So I've got some great memories of of that night, um, but particularly that whole whole season, I guess, leading into the Olympics was mm. pretty special. So, Pete, going back into the, going back to the nineties, and uh, the, so the early nineties was your junior sort of career, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I uh, went to the World Junior Championships at um, in nineteen ninety two. So just out of well, I was actually still in school. I was a triple jumper back then, and you know, a part time long jumper. Did it every now and again, but um, finished. I think I went in ranked 32 out of 33 competitors and I ended up finishing fifth. So um, I had a quite a significant personal best um, <laughs> leading into it. And then in the qualifying round, made the final, made the final, ended up finishing fifth and then actually started to believe I might 
be good at something. <laughs> <laughs> so you weren't so before that. I mean, as a real junior, say in your teens and so forth, was was what was your sporting you know prowess like there? Um, I played cricket, state cricket under sixteen for Queensland. I grew up in Queensland, and um, yeah, athletics for Queensland. So I was triple jumping, playing cricket. Made the choice to stick with the ass um, around that. Yeah, you know, I was sixteen, and. Um, you know, got to state level, national level, sort of 16, 17, was looking for that qualifying distance to make the Australian team for the World Juniors. And back then, going to the World Junior Championships was massive. It was the only world event there was for a junior, for a junior athlete. Wow. And it was, it was a little bit of an unrealistic dream for me because I was sort of battling to get medals at national level. Mm. But within 12 months, it all changed, you know, a little bit of growth spurt, <laughs> learn a bit more about the event. Um, moved from Townsville down to Brisbane um, when I was 16, 17, went to school in Brisbane, learnt a little bit more about training and then had a, a significant improvement, I guess, and, um, yeah, was shooting for that qualifying just to make the Australian team and got there. And then the next step is, well, okay, I'm there now. What, what do I do now? Do mm. I just be happy with that or do I go away and try and do a personal best or beyond that? And Yeah, that was – I have – good memories of um, those junior days, but um, that was probably the first real taste of um, international success, finishing fifth and doing a significant PB. And that gave me some real belief that, well, you know, maybe I might be able to do something as a senior athlete, yep. but it took another five or six years to do it in a change of event. So who were some of the big influences? And in I, I imagine you had some significant coaching going yeah. on in that, that part of your life. And who were those people, and, and what were the what were the key sort of uh, the key things that got you certainly moving in the right direction? Yeah, um, you know, through high school, um, Gary Bourne was uh, my coach. Um, he's still coaching now. He's coaching wow. some of our best male and female jumpers now, and has done for the last twenty years. Great. He seems to have had a hand in just about every elite long jumper um, that has come through. So we've got a significant history in men's long jump in Australia and um, even now there's one or two guys coming through who have qualified for the World Championships this year and um, we seem we always have a representative in the men's long jump and we seem to always pull a medal every yeah. four, three or four years at World Champs. The name Gary Honey comes to mind. Yes. Was he a bit of an um, icon for you? Yeah, no doubt. Gary Honey, Dave Colbert, these sorts of guys before me um, mm. who I still talk to now and um, – yeah, I've got fond memories of um, of growing up and those guys being on the telly and, yeah. you know, uh, hoping to kind of be like them and um, to end up getting there and, and performing, I suppose, at the highest level was pretty special to me. It's a long time ago now, but um, I still do look back on it. Yeah. As you should. And when did it become a reality for you? When did you think, actually, I might be able to shoot for this? I might be able to represent my country on the big stage at the Olympics? You know, was there an event? Was there a, a moment? Was it the fifth in the world champs as a young lad? What, what, when was the moment, do you think? Yeah, it, 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 well, it, initially it was, but then it took five years of injury and almost not, you know, doing the sport anymore, quitting and changing events to, to the long jump doing that instead of the triple jump, the triple jump just banged up my body and I just couldn't get the progression and seemed to keep missing Australian seasons every January, February, March um, and not being able to actually perform, yeah. doing a lot of training and then getting injured. So I lost that belief. And uh, then it was a change of event. I remember it clearly in 1997. I just said to my coach, uh, Keith Connor, who was my coach from 94 onwards when I moved down to Sydney, um, 
I don't enjoy the sport anymore. I need to do something I just enjoy from week to week. At, at club level, I might go and run some sprints, but I want a long jump because I think there's less chance of me getting injured. Mm. It's just one jump, run and jump, not <laughs> one, one a run with a hop, step and a jump. Yeah. He didn't believe me. He, he thought, oh, you'll do this for a week or two and you'll be back. But no, I was dead serious. And um, I did a couple of club meets and uh, started just to enjoy competing yep. and jumping, you know, seven metres, 50, 760. I think I might have even popped out a 770. And I thought, okay, Commonwealth Games qualifying is seven metres, 90. And I thought, this is realistic. Give me another couple of months at yep. this because I've never really trained for this event technically. Yeah. And yeah, within sort of three or four months, I'd qualified and. The rest is history after that. Yeah. So you just refined your technique. Uh, that absorbed a new passion for this new chosen discipline and you just decided to see how far you could take it. Just competing every week and being then able to compete at a national level in all the Grand Prix meetings. And then, yeah, achieving that qualifying distance and I was jumping against Jai Tarima and a few other guys who were, who were you know, international level. We had a very strong um, field at national level for the long jump. Mm. So... It was sort of trying to break into that top three and then qualify, um, which did happen. And then the belief started to come. Okay, well, I can make the Commonwealth Games. Um, where do I go from here? You know, if I qualify, well, I've qualified. So now I'm hopefully going to make the team. Went to the trials. Didn't have a great trials. Finished third. Had another little niggling injury. But the trials were six weeks before the Commonwealth Games. They had them in winter, but they had them... Uh, in Sydney, so we did a bit of a prep up in Brisbane in, in the warmer climate. Come down to Sydney, and I think it was July. Went through the trials, made the, got third, just made the team. But I had a good qualifying jump earlier in the year, and Commonwealth Games was six weeks later. I had six weeks to get my body right, which I did, and then won it six weeks later and jumped eight twenty two, personal Amazing. best. Well Beat done. Beat <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We actually jumped the same distance, and I won on a countback. But um, you know. It was um, that was pretty amazing. Do you think you would have done better if you had a, uh, a real catch cry name like Jumping Dry Terrain? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was pretty vanilla. Uh, you know, I wasn't into the the hand clapping and all that sort of rubbish. No. I, I was pretty straight. My coach uh, always said to me, "That's not you. You know, keep it keep it simple. Focus yep. on what you're doing. Don't get caught up in that rubbish." But and you've carried that right yeah. through. I mean, I've seen some of your interviews. You're very humble. You don't like to sort of – I, I can see you even now getting a little bit uneasy as we question you about something that's really amazing because, you know, I often stop and think about that, Pete. You know, we're around something – someone who's elite at mm. their, at their uh, sort of chosen field. And, I mean, to stand, you know, on that, uh, stand on that podium yeah, uh, and absolutely. get a gold medal at a Commonwealth Games is uh, – is quite amazing, and uh, yeah, we are in some pretty elite company, well and truly. Your training regime, um, what I'm leading to is the athlete of 2019 versus mm. the athlete in the 1990s. Um, clearly now you're around um, footballers and so forth, elite sports people, um, a little bit different in terms of the long jump and, and athletic sort of thing, but it's still elite sports. What do you see – well, first of all, talk a little bit about your regime mm. and then what you see different now between sort of those athletes of the 90s compared to a 2019 athlete. Um, yeah, if we're talking uh, – I guess I've got to separate this into track and field and, and football, mm. two different areas. So track and field, which I don't have a lot to do with anymore. I do follow it. Um, I, don't, I don't think the training has actually advanced – that much um, from what I can gather but what has changed is is the people and the youth and what we're dealing with in society the distractions um, all those sorts of things yeah you know uh, 
there are sad anxiety and all the, the other the mental issues that come into it, pressure, media, social media in particular. And, you know, these days you can just pick up a phone and you can read what someone says about you. And generally it's not that positive most of the time. But back then you had to um, read a newspaper to, to hopefully maybe see your name or even anything written about you. So I think those are the biggest challenges. The training itself, there's there's certainly been a lot more advancement in sports science, particularly recovery in the last probably 15, 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, but even back when I was competing, people were doing ice bars and doing contrast bars and all these sorts of methods. Some of us just chose not to maybe do them or maybe wasn't educated enough around it. Were you disciplined around this? I was extremely disciplined around everything that I knew. Um, in terms of recovery, um, I probably wasn't that well educated on it. Um, recovery for me was sleeping well, waking up the next day, going for a jog and a stretch. I don't think I did, did an ice bath till I was about 28. Right, yeah. um, but I still recovered well. I, you know, In long jump, you're not getting hit by an opponent, so you're not getting corkies and bumps and bruises. It's a different um, kind of recovery process that our footballers have to go through because they are getting that contact. So in terms of football, yeah, I wasn't in football in the 90s, but mm. certainly watching it, the athletes' shapes have changed and you know, they've become more athletic and then they've gone back a little bit the other way, a little bit more strength and power. So there's a oh, – it's constantly shifting a little bit depending on what the team needs, the philosophy of the coach, the game style, the types of athletes you get in. You know, we're trying to condition them to their strengths, what they're good at. I mean, we can focus on their the challenges that they have or their weaknesses, but generally you try and focus on what they're good at and, and not try to – there's no point trying to make some someone something they're not. Mm. Um, what about rule changes, Pete? Does that affect the sort of athlete you're now going for if it becomes more of a transition running game versus a in, in tight sort of, you know, hard ball uh, type scenario where you just talked about strength and power and then the outside run? Is that sort of part of it too? I think most clubs are onto that, have been onto that for a little while now. Yep. Um, I think with the rule changes, I don't think it changes things that much. Yep. You've, you've definitely got to have players who can run. Yep. There is no doubt about that. Um yeah, it, it it really is a philosophical um, thing with probably each individual coach mm. and how they want their team to play. Although we are a bit of a copycat sort of industry, aren't we? As soon as someone seems to have a, an answer to something, everyone seems to follow it. Like high altitude was sort of something <laughs> that sort of had its moment in time and, you know, uh, being around David Butterfin at the time, he was a massive believer about that. Then other clubs start to follow, North Melbourne, St Kilda all going across to Arizona, then no one's doing it because <laughs> they start to think, well, maybe that 1% gain could be sort of, you know, maybe got in other areas too. Yeah, it, it, it's where you want to allocate your time. Uh, I certainly still think there's a place for for a little bit of that, um, but it's where you want to allocate the time that you have. You know, the time that we have with the players now is certainly a little bit less yep. than probably 20 years ago. There's a lot more restriction around player access in the off-season, days off, these sorts of things. Um, so, you know, that, that's another thing that's changed probably from 20 years it's ago. real OH&S, isn't it? Yeah, you, it you is. You don't think of it like that. No, no but it is. World. It's very yeah. true, isn't it? Yeah. And there's no doubt the game is extremely difficult yeah. and um, recovering from games of footy now um, seem to take – Half of the week, most of the week sometimes, depending on, you know, corkies and all yeah. those sorts of things. Um, the stress of the game, how much running's been done, the type of game. But we've, we, we feel that we're fairly well educated on how to, to manage that 
That's yeah. that's my job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you'd have an ideal week where you know what you want to do based on when you've played previously and what the next sort of schedule looks like in terms of whether you've got a five-day break, six, seven, you know, we wouldn't do many five-day breaks, but six or seven versus sometimes you have an extended break with the way the draw goes. So how much of it is sort of planned by you looking at the calendar and then how much is it based on what you dealt with on a, you know, a day after a game day with injuries and so forth? Yeah, there's no doubt I will always look at the calendar and the games, the day's break, and I actually map it out. And I have a, a template there. But when you get to a week where, where, where the game's, you know, let's say it's a seven-day break and there's been a lot of crash and bash and guys are pretty bruised and you've got six corkies, significant corkies, then, yeah, it does change things a little bit. So you, you're managing on the run. Yep. You've got that template, but, you know, you have to obviously be flexible with it and, um, and know your athletes and talk to them. Yeah. Pete, we were talking earlier about uh, Steve Saunders, a guy I know very well, is was the um, high performance, uh, physical performance, same sort of role as you at North Melbourne, um, certainly incredibly well known through the industry. I remember a time going back a few years ago that someone said to me that Steve's the most important man at North Melbourne, more important than the coach. Is that how you look at I mean, it's, it's going to be hard <laughs> yeah, with your humbleness and so forth, um, humility, um, but it's a fairly significant role what you've got, isn't it? And 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 on the back of that, I'm just throwing in like three questions all at once yeah, here. Which but is on the back standard of that, form, Pete, too, just so you know. <laughs> but you – and I want to touch on something you said earlier as well because um, you are a physical performance coach, but there's so much more that goes on in terms of the mind coaching and so mm-hmm. forth like mm-hmm. that. Um, but let's go, let's, let's go back to the first question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, how, import, how important do you see your role, take humility right out of it? Um, well, personally, I – think my role is pretty important. Uh, I certainly go home and think a lot about it and, and pour a lot of time into it. Um, you've got 45 players. You've got, you know, I've got numerous staff underneath me, um, coaches to work with and deal with. So, But, you know, I don't think my job's any more important than anyone else's. And, in fact, I think the staff that I have under me are, are, are more important, how I manage them and how much support they give me and help Um the medical staff as well. So I'm only as good as them. Yep. Um, it's a team effort, so I certainly don't view my myself as being any more important than anyone else. Mm. Yeah. And when you hear commentators say these sports science guys don't let the players, you know, practice goal kicking and they think that's the answer to everything, mm. you know, do you take that sort of with a grain of salt or do you go, actually, guys, if you actually knew what we do, <laughs> you'd have a different opinion or...? No, I actually think they're right and um, I'm, I'm one of the fitness guys who actually lets them do this stuff because... You know, we're here to play footy and here to kick goals. They need to practice goal kicking. So I don't have an issue with the players staying out there for an extra half an hour and doing it. And our forwards um, do that. And, um, you know, in the early days, maybe I was a little bit controlling of that. But I, over time and experience, have realised that, um, you know, this is what they need to do. And they get conditioned to it and their chances of actually getting hurt reduce yep. if they are conditioned to it. Yeah. It's pretty simple, I think. It's refreshing to hear because, you know, we talk to high-performance people, uh, Pete, at different codes and they're saying, oh, you know, the, you know, their GPS is telling us one thing. But, you know, Pete and I had a good chat off air about the fact that if you're a cricketer and you bowl, you've got to bowl. <laughs> you know, you're not going to get any – you're not going to get bowling fitness by sort of, you know, not bowling. So I, I love that aspect, which is really fantastic. How do you stay on top of the latest innovations that are coming in your field? You know, if you're a salesperson, you're going to a conference to hear sales dialogue if you, you know, 
in any industry at the moment, you're probably two or three clicks away from a TED talk that might give you a, a new distinction or a sharpening of a philosophy. Where do you go to get your sort of next best thing that you can bring to the table? Um, numerous, numerous areas. I mean, there's conferences you can go to. We do PD overseas, go and visit organisations. But online now, there's just so much access um, through social media. I'm not a big social media person, but um, there is so much access to what's going on there um, that you know I find a lot of it there my staff certainly do because they're you know they're right into it um, reading um, talking I talk to a lot of other people in the industry I've got a network of other strength and conditioning people and and uh, people I've known for a while that I'll, I'll go back to all the time but um, you know what I try to be innovative and think of stuff myself mm. as well because I've been in sport for a long time and I've seen you know, a lot of stuff through my track days and I try to be innovative and, and think of how to do things a little differently. So um, I don't try and copy all the time. I try to be innovative. Is there any environment you toured maybe overseas that you look at and go, they're just absolutely smashing it? They're the, they're the template that maybe you'd want Liverpool to bring back? Or- <laughs> <laughs> I haven't, haven't actually been over to England, to English soccer. Certainly seen a few NFL environments and college football. Um yeah, they're all fairly similar, yeah. uh, but culturally they're different to us. Yeah. So we can only take, a, I think, a little bit from there. There's some things that they do over there. I don't know if they would work here. Um, yeah. You know, the two other clubs I've worked at, Hawthorne, yep. St Kilda, there's things I've seen there which I've tried to do here which haven't quite worked and there's other things that we do here that I know those environments weren't doing that yep. work. Yeah. So you've really just got to – there's a little bit of trial and error, but um, you've got to use your resources, your staff, the people under you to to come up with the ideas and and press them to actually – help you with that stuff and you want to keep it fresh too because you're dealing with human beings not robots when you're putting them through their paces mm, it's not true. like you're a trainer at flemington just doing circle work with a horse that's you've got right. to keep them sort of engaged and and interested i guess yeah. so so Pete, getting back to physical performance and the athlete of today how much of um is it emotional performance coaching and do you play a part in that or is there a separate person that at a, at a footy club uh most footy clubs and certainly us we have people allocate you know working in that area those areas um but yeah i've certainly got a role there as well there's there's no doubt as the physical performance manager you you are in managing some of the mental stuff sure as well um is that the biggest challenge that you face with athletes today uh yeah yeah i think so and as i said before just distractions Distractions, and and other things the amount of things going on in their lives and some of them you you know a lot of them you probably don't know about um But so, how do you find that out, Pete? Because if a player is not yeah. well and not moving well, you look at them and think, you know, he's got something wrong with his legs or he's got something. How do you know when they're not going to sort of come in with a, you know, a bandage around their mind to let you know that maybe these things are not quite right, you know, between the years? Well, I guess it comes back to your relationship with them and the connection you build with those players over time and them trusting you yep. to, to come and talk to you. It's really hard to do with 45 mm. on the list, but um, yeah. you. You do your best, but you've you've got to you've got to build a strong relationship with with your players and and have their trust. Yeah, and sometimes that trust can take a little while to get. Um, but I think in the environment we're in here culturally, we're we're very strong, and I think that, that that's not a real problem for us. If there's so there something, are, yep. if there's something simmering, um, generally it will um, they will go to the right people, and um, we'll all be in the know and 
yep. and we'll all manage them in the appropriate way. Yeah. Do you but, have to deal differently with, say, Indigenous players versus sort of, you know, people that are third-generation Australian players or it doesn't really matter? They've, they've still got the same sort of, um, you know, red flags that are going to let you know that something's not quite right? Yep. Um, indigenous, non-Indigenous, black, white, pink, what, you know. Doesn't matter. It, it, everyone's different. Everyone's got something um, that you need to tap into yep. to, to really press their buttons to make them give you back their absolute best. So, yep. um, yeah, it just comes with the experience. And uh, I guess it's my 15th year in the AFL. I'm, I think I'm just starting to get on top of that type <laughs> of stuff. Uh, yeah. Pete, culture to me is around conversations and, and you mentioned the word culture and where Rick and I, uh, we like to delve into people's minds on what, what are the, how do they see culture, um, how do they gauge it, uh, what's your interpretation of culture and, and could you give us a bit of an explanation, more in-depth look at Richmond's culture and so forth and what you're known for or what you see in these walls here? Yeah, it's culture's a word that I suppose gets thrown out there pretty easily sometimes. Um and it's, you know, I'd probably even question well, what does it really mean over time but probably in the last few years it, it, I think it's just down to connection and people, how they connect, you know, yep. how well they know each other, what they know about each other. Is there something about, you know, that person that, that they should know that they don't? Um, it's just going deeper into, you know, the humanistic side of things and, Sometimes in busy environments, it's very easy to forget that and not do it yep. because you're just on the go, you know, task-focused. And I've probably been a little guilty of that over time. And something that Richmond's taught me in the last couple of years is is what that looks like. And I think it's helped everybody, not just our players, but uh, coaching staff and, and everyone involved mm-hmm. in football. Um, and it's very powerful and it's it's not tangible. You, it's you know you can't show a number to it or anything, yeah. but it, but it is powerful, and um, yeah. So probably for me a bit of self discovery around that stuff for the last few years. But seeing some of our players grow and the group grow, and understand that, and and then what they can get out of each other and what they can extract out of each other from training and and games, um, has been quite impressive. But um, I, I don't know if that answered your question. No, it does. It does. Yeah, but no, really. it's it's very hard to define it but that's sort of how i define it yeah i can rick i can tell from pete yep. you're just a very genuine <laughs> yeah. empathetic guy and I, and I think that goes a long way and it's even from our brief meetings it, it's just a you're a guy you can trust and mm. i think that's i think the trust the conversations the empathy and the understanding and, you, and you've clearly you've clearly got that um there's no, not a hint of ego about you mate you can you can <laughs> just, yeah. just i think not that long ago pete Players wouldn't go to a coach and say, "Look, I'm not feeling that well." In case they go, might not pick me this week. Yeah, and and I need to play because I need to. I'm coming out of contract at the end of the year. That they'd be thinking maybe more isolation, whereas it's actually saying, "Look, I'm I'm putting my hand up here, and you can question my courageousness, but I'm putting my hand up. Here. I'm not doing well." Mm. And to have that environment where you've got to care and someone feels the belong that I can have this conversation with Pete, and I know it's going to stay in this little four walls till we work it all out. Yeah. Uh, I think that's where I'm hearing there about. It seems to me that there's a caring culture where you're going to be supported with, the, as you say, no matter where your background is, what you're bringing to the table is irrelevant. Who you are as a person is everything and we'll take it from there. Yep. So moving on to performance because you are a performance coach, Pete, so let's mm-hmm. uh, let's touch on that. And uh, 
the people, the Richmond people we know would kill us for not asking those sorts of questions. <laughs> so, they? But, um, so you joined at the end of 2012. Yep. Uh, Richmond finished 12th that year. Yep. Okay. Then you went on to play finals three years in a row. Unfortunately, mm. got bundled out first game each of those, but you still you, you made the elite eight. Clearly, that was all due to you with your <laughs> opponent. Yeah. Yep. yeah. But, um, but then, came, then came a little year called 2016, and um, that's when things really started to uh, potentially unravel in the media eyes and the supporters eyes I guess in the in the performance um, uh, regime and that's how we get measured on wins and losses isn't it and 2016 finished 13th they were calling for um, Dimmer's head uh, Damien Hardwick um, and no doubt there were uh, there was questions being asked about yourself and um, there was something I had a look on one of the Richmond sites that came up at the end of the 2016 so there's a fair bit of criticism going around that said uh, um that they were questioning, um, besides Rants, none of their players, none of none of our players. This is, is a supporter page, isn't it? You got to call our phrase. A supporter, it is. Yep, yeah, yep. yeah, yeah, yeah. But what about a question a lot of people are asking is is um, none of the players are really that muscular or explosive. So they're really looking for excuses. Um, you know, and and you would have been challenged on that in terms of what, where's the future, where it's going, as would have everyone in the footy department, I would imagine. How did you face that adversity and? Did you just stay true to your belief that we just need to follow this path or were there some shifts that were made? Um, firstly, I wasn't probably that aware of what was being said oh, or sorry written. Or, um, <laughs> no, no, that's fine because people, you know, with social media and whatnot, people are going to do that and they've got every right to, you know, supporters of the club. They're going to they're gonna microscope everything. Mm. Um, and we do as well internally and... Um, yeah, I had a had a bit of a look at myself and and my department and um, and naturally I think you know there was it's widely known there was a bit of an internal review and and whatnot um, and yeah we had to shift some things and adjust some things um, so philosophically there were some changes to the, to our program even our pre our, our weekly schedule looked um, did we shift more of an emphasis emphasis to a different area physically yes we did a little bit. Um, we had a new strength and conditioning coach start with us. Um, so there was a change in f- a little bit of a shift in philosophy. Yep. In terms of actual conditioning and things like that, yeah, it might have shifted 10%. Um, but, you know, we got some players in, Josh Caddy, Dion Prestia, Toby Nankervis. We had some other young guys who were coming through at the time, Daniel Rioli. You know, it's never just one thing. Yep. And no doubt there are some areas physically that probably needed to to look, be looked at and we certainly did not and I'm one I'm very self-critical and and I looked at the program and some things had to change you know what's the definition of insanity if you keep doing the same thing you're probably going to get the same result and I took that view so there were definitely some changes that I made but I certainly would never have been influenced by any outside thoughts it's I'm, great to hear yeah. I'm only influenced by Damien yeah um, and people internally and um I actually never felt once under threat in my role. Um, I certainly needed to look at things and make changes, but I felt pretty comfortable. And, you know, the reality was we had a bad year. Yeah, we did. But the previous three years, we'd won oh, something like 45 or 46 home and away games. Yes, didn't win any, any finals, which is really disappointing. But uh, 216 now, looking back on it, was a blip on the radar. Mm. Um, so... 
Yeah, it's funny how things can pan out, but um, the next two years panned out all right. I mean, last year was probably disappointing in the end, but we did win a lot of games. Well, let's not gloss over 2017 because to bounce back from mm. 13th to win a flag um, was just phenomenal. It was it was one of the most amazing. You look back through the through the record books of, of the VFL and then now AFL. Um, it was it was a pretty special uprising, wasn't it? Oh, it was a success by so many ways. Not just the win loss ratio, but just the way the club transforms, hung together. Mm. You had a clean out in terms of the review. In terms of we're going to chuck out some things that aren't working and let's reinforce the things that are. And then you got the ultimate reward. I reckon part of that has to be in your thinking anyway about you just demanding more of yourself in 2017 than you did in 2016. And that's why I don't get the sense you worry about what a fan based website's going to write about the strength and conditioning program or the you know peak physical performance of the Richmond Foot club you're just going to demand more of yourself than they could anyway and as yeah. you say if you're answering to the coaches that you respect here and to the, the footy program that you've developed you're answerable to that i mean anyone who thinks pete that those people aren't sitting in here thinking how do we get better i mean they've got rocks in their head but mm. i think what happens and you touched on it very early in this interview pete it's feedback's instant now for athletes mm. but it's also instant for administrators is instant for you know players as well so uh, you know wh- where do you see it now going for you know you're in let's be really candid you've you've got a, a bit of an injury profile now which on the n- numbers sense doesn't look that bad you know uh, but yet uh, when they're irreplaceable players you know you, you, your bookends are, are out for a long period mm. of time you know your captain's out you, know, you just can't replace them with a first year rookie drafted player and say well we've got another soldier in as you know maybe an Alistair Clarkson might say so not soldier inside it's not like for like so where's your focus now in terms of setting up because you know the season's three games in so where's your season you know where's your focus now to set this team up for success going forward yeah well it's getting those senior guys back on the park um <laughs> obviously alex is going to be a lot longer than than the other two or three um yeah it's it's focusing on okay who can come in and do the role now and getting them physically prepared and you know it gives a great opportunity for for other young kids or whoever we select in the team to fill that role and we do internally have the attitude that the system will take care of everything yep yeah people on the outside will um obviously say that you know the talent isn't quite as good uh, but that doesn't matter we'll take care of what we can control and yep. um but i'll f- prepare them as well as i can and i'll help our um other conditioning staff get the other guys back as quickly as possible and make sure that when they come back they're not at risk that's the key thing don't rush you know not to rush them back we want to get them back when they're ready to play so they can play out the rest of the year. Um, I do recall in 2014, at one stage being three wins, 10 losses, and, you know, being <laughs> written off. Um, and I'm, we found it difficult, obviously, but we did win the next nine, nine games. Yeah, nine in a row, yeah. And right. made the finals. Now, we're nowhere near that. Um, yeah. Things can change in two or three weeks in footy. Two weeks is such a long time in sport. Yep. Things change, you know, very quickly. So, um, yeah, I'm not too fussed about <laughs> what's going on outside at the moment it's just controlling what we can do it's the old saying it's probably boring but yep. that's the reality yeah yeah yep. you know, we had boys had a great session today uh did some really good work with the young guys and um you know we're really focused on where we're going and that's all that's important yeah perfect so as we uh as we close up now pete you've been incredibly generous with your time and uh, appreciate it. it's 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 Wonderful to sit here in Punt Road and speak to someone like yourself in a club like Richmond with nearly 100,000 members, one of the most successful uh, sporting clubs there is in um, in the world, let alone just Australia. 
but would be remiss not to say uh, and congratulate you. I know it was back in 2013 when Athletics Australia <laughs> um, began the custom of allocating presenting international representation bibs. And it was I watched the um, footage of you and uh, in the uh, with the team and so forth. Uh, the players are absolutely over the moon for you and wrapped and you. Um, not the not the longest uh, Logies accepting speech no, was it? It wasn't. <laughs> it was like thanks very much. There was no music. There was no music playing him <laughs> off. There was. Uh... It certainly wasn't. But um, but you you've got such great. You've given us today such yeah. uh, and our listeners such great insights in terms of the. Um, um, not only the Richmond Footy Club, but just football in general and sports in general. From your um, your time as an athlete back in the um, back in the nineties, and um, yeah, we didn't want to certainly leave without saying congratulations for that because you know as a Commonwealth Games gold medalist, um, that's 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 no mean feat, well and truly. And going to the big dance, the Olympics, and the Olympics um, as well. Yeah, yeah and I often I, that's the analogy I give to the people I coach. I say. 7 billion people on the planet, at any one moment in time, there's only about seven or 800 of them playing the footy system at the elite level. Even fewer than that get a chance to go represent their country after a PB, mate. You are very humble. We saw that in that video. Mm. I actually, like Pete, was just cracking up going, you almost had to be coerced into giving a speech and you're like, <laughs> thanks, this is overwhelming. Thanks, that'll do. Uh, but realistically, mate, um, don't, don't ever lose sight of the fact that the reason why you hold the position you do, the status you've got, the way that players follow and listen to you now is because of who you are and what you You've done, and I think who you are certainly outshines anything else that you could have done, no matter what medals got wrapped around your, your neck. So I know that Pete and I are really humbled with this opportunity today. Thanks for making the time. We trust you enjoyed listening to Voices of Value, a little bit between Rick Rushton and Peter Kakos. If their views are not necessarily those of the wider world, but they should be. Thanks, Peter Burge. Thank you very much. If you're keen to enhance the quality of your life even further in the future, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or your your preferred podcast source. Our website is voicesofvaluepodcast.com and we welcome both your feedback and ratings on the content we provide. Join the conversation again next week when Peter and Rick continue the search for truth, justice and the value added way. Listener.